Good morning. It was suggested in preparation for his sermon that I would read Genesis 2, 18 through 25, and Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. I'm actually going to start with Genesis 2, 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground of the, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of heavens, and brought from them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now Ephesians five twenty-two through 35. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church his body and is himself and is himself its savior now as the church submits to Christ so also wives submit in everything to your, their husbands husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having clean cleansed her by her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I want to welcome each one here in, in Christ's name. Um, this is a Sunday where we have a lot more visitors than normal, uh, so let me uh, take a little time here to catch you up to speed with where we are. Uh, we have been preaching through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, and we are this morning at 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, so if you're here as a visitor, uh, unless you've been listening to our sermons online, uh, you don't have quite the, the uh, progression uh, but I pray that you'll be able to uh, hear God's word with what we study this morning. 1 Corinthians 7 has 40 verses, and um, you're probably grateful that we're not going to look specifically at all of them, because that would take a fair amount of time. 
Um, so this morning, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to sort of do a flyover, uh, look at some of the major themes that exist in the passage, um, and then look at what I think is the unifying concept that ties all 40 verses together. Chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians has been used, there's certain verses that have been used as proof text for different positions, which we would probably disagree with. And so I want to uh, spend a fair amount of time looking at some of those individual verses and explaining them in their textual and historical context and in the way that we should understand them. And then, um, as I mentioned earlier, look then at what I feel is the unifying concept that kind of pulls it all together. So if you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 7, uh, we will read that. Uh, before we begin, uh, let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning as we open your word, I pray that you would also open our hearts and our minds to hear, to believe, and uh, to, through faith, apply these truths to our lives. We pray this through Christ. <clears throat> First Corinthians 7. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my role in all the churches. 
Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. But keep the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who called in the Lord, for he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. One of the issues with understanding this passage from a uh, 21st century mind is that we don't understand uh, or we don't understand Roman culture. And in this particular par par uh, passage, the historical context means 
uh, a fair amount. Uh, number one, what was Corinth? Uh, what type of town was it? What were some of the, the uh, vices that were present there? How did the Romans themselves politically view marriage? Um, and so we'll spend a little time here to look at some of those things. It said that the Roman system of marriage contained uh, three or four different types of marriage. Um, the, the highest form would have been that between uh, the higher classes. And these would have been normally arranged marriages. And the ceremony there would follow uh, very similar to what our, our marriage ceremony would look like. Um, in fact, the historical roots of what our marriage ceremony looks like comes almost directly from the, the upper-class Roman way, that of the families uh, giving the two people, that of having uh, best friends, um, that of having a procession. Uh, those things all source uh, from the Roman way of getting married. But within their culture, there were also two other types of marriage. Uh, they would have had a very prevalent common-law marriage, that of people who would simply live together, and over time would be considered marriage. And then you would have had um, slave marriages as well, where the slave owner would force people to be married, and he could dissolve that marriage at will as well. Uh, so very different from our understanding of what marriage is. And we can imagine that in the church in Corinth, there was people from all of these different places in life. Uh, you would have had some slaves, you would have had some uh, lower class people, you would have had some upper class people. So you're trying to combine all of these different understandings of what marriage is and trying to prescribe for these people uh, something. One of the things that's clear is that the Romans didn't have, or the ancient Romans didn't have, an understanding that marriage was for life. Um, Rome was one of the few cultures where a woman could divorce her husband. And um, in even the upper classes, marriage was entered into and put away with, um, very similar to our society, um, at a person's whims. So they did not have an understanding that marriage was for life. Another thing we need to remember about the Corinthian society is that it was highly sexualized. So within their worship of their gods, uh, within, their, uh, within their community as a, a seaport that was a busy place of commerce, there was a fair amount of, of immorality. And so the Corinthians are reacting to some of these things um, and have a poor understanding of, of a biblical or a God-ordered uh, view of sex. So these people are struggling with these issues as well. Now Paul is approaching this from a predominantly Jewish view of marriage. And in that system, a young man was expected to be married by the age of 20. And if he was not, he was considered a sinner. Um, so uh, we have obviously some Jews within the church as well. So we have all of these different views and ideas clashing. And that's where we get into uh, the textual context. That is, what does the surrounding text say about this passage? So we're following 
uh, directly uh, the latter part of chapter 6, where there's a discussion of immorality um, that outside of the boundaries of marriage. And, and Brother Steve, I think, did a good job of helping us understand that um, how the gospel affects the impulses of our body. And it was then out of uh, that context that the Apostle Paul is now answering some questions. So the first verse there in chapter 7, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So we are assuming that the Corinthians themselves sent Paul a letter and said, here's some problems we have. We're not quite sure how to understand these matters. Can you help us out? And we don't have that list of questions, um, but we can, we can surmise from his answers what some of those questions were. And in the first section, um, they're answering the question or looking at the question, is sex sinful? Now, if you remember, there was a number of, um, of people in the churches that would say the things of the body should be avoided. It's only those of the spirit that matters. And I think they went, uh, the heresies were called the Gnostics. So that which is bodily is to be put away. And so these Christians are in this very immoral Corinthian society, and their reaction to that and to the prevalence of sin is to say, I don't want anything to do with that. And even to the place that they would refuse marriage or dissolve marriages so that they, they wouldn't be drawn into immorality. And so Paul is addressing that question. Uh, he looks at a little bit what is circumcision and what does that mean. Uh, he looks at arranged marriages in the latter portion. Um, so what I'd like to do now is look at six different um, kind of hot spots or, or minds that we can step on in this passage and try to bring them out. Um, the first one has to do uh, with the first part there. If you have a King James or another translation, the second part of the first verse is rendered, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Um, the modern translations uh, say that as the ESV, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And that is, if you look across uh, the Old Testament, you'll find a number of places where the phrase touch a woman is used. And it's normally in, in a, a sexual content. So in Genesis 2, Abimelech is spared by God from touching Sarah. Uh, in Ruth, Boaz forbid his men from touching her while she was in the field. And in Psalm 6, the idea of touching a neighbor's wife clearly contains uh, immoral meanings. Okay, so this is not a condemnation of simple contact or physical contact, but that of promoting uh, proper contact and removing yourself from immorality. The second place uh, is there in verses 1 through 6. This has been used by some uh, to reduce marriage as that of simply fulfilling passion. The, the purpose for marriage is that humans feel these passions and they have to do something about it, so God provided marriage, and that's really what marriage is about. Um, and we find some... Um, unfortunate teaching coming out of that. Here again, we must remember that Paul is addressing 
particular questions about marriage. As I mentioned earlier, people were willing to dissolve their marriage to remain uh, free from immorality. We must realize that Paul is not developing an encompassing theology of marriage in this, you know, solely in this passage. Um, but we do recognize that what he says does have significant instruction for those who are married. But other passages, such as the ones Calvin read, help us develop a fully rounded view of what marriage should be. Another note, I think in verses 1 through 6, um, in a lot of versions, verse 6 is attached to verse 7. Um, I think if you read that carefully, it really belongs following verse 5. Um, so that he is saying that as a concession, not a command, um, what is said in verse 5. As we continue on in, in verses uh, 8 and then also uh, in the latter part of the chapter, Paul seems to be promoting a single lifestyle as that being more holy than marriage. Um, on one hand, uh, our culture does tend to, in some ways, demean those who are not married as somehow you know, not as acceptable, less developed, whatever you want to say there. This is clearly regrettable. Paul here in, in these verses and in verses 32 to 35 clearly states that the single life is one of great freedom to serve God in ways those who are married are unable to do. In fact, he goes so far in verse 7 to say that those who are able to control their passions enough to be unmarried do so as the gift of God. So in a real sense, those who are single have something a little extra. Um, again, is Paul saying, though, that this is a preferable state? I think in his context, in the Corinthian context, he is promoting that. Um, I don't know that that's regulative to all of us. Uh, in that culture, again, with the levels of persecution, the levels of overt sinfulness, for a person to be able to remain single and serve God as best they can in that state was considered preferable. And again, pulling back to chapter 6, um, he says things are helpful, but not all things are proper. Um, if we look particularly there, um, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. So he's telling them in this context, it may be more helpful to remain unmarried. But in the same chapter, he clearly states in verses 2 and verses 9, 29, 36, 39, that it is no less holy and perfectly legitimate for a person to choose to be married. Another place we can get off track is verses 13 to 16. Um, and that is where uh, it talks about the believer in a home making the unbelievers holy. Uh, it says the unbelieving spouse is made holy by the believing spouse and their children as well. From this, uh, this, this passage, people have said that you know, a husband or children are clearly Christians if there is one member of the family that is. And I believe that probably pulls it a bit far. Um, I don't think that Paul is proposing that being married to a believer makes one saved. 
But the benefits of a Christian upbringing and the influence brought to bear in a household by a Christian clearly uh, brings a holy atmosphere. So it's far better for a person to have that influence close to them, to have the light of the gospel within the home rather than only without. And also, in in the Corinthian context, there was quite a pagan uh, context. And so they would have had rituals where a a child uh, carried in its mother's womb would be blessed by certain gods. And then they would be blessed upon birth. And then at certain ages, they would have all of these pagan rituals. So it's clearly better for a person not to be in that setting. Uh, So it lends a more holy um, identity. Uh, Verses 21 and 22 are another subject of that of slavery. One of the things that we don't find in the Bible is a clear... Um, rejection of slavery. Uh, We don't have, thou shalt not have a slave. Uh, We have some things in Leviticus that say, he who captures people to enslave them and sells them as slaves, uh, we have prohibitions against that. But we don't have clear prohibition against slavery. Now, when we talk about slavery, it means very different things. So the, the American slavery... Uh, in, the 18, in the early American history, was quite different than what Roman slavery would have been. Within the Roman context, if I was struggling, I could sell myself as a slave or as an indentured servant to a person. Uh, so they, it takes on quite different context. Again, I don't think Paul's comments here are a blessing of slavery as an institution. He's simply advising those who find themselves in that condition how they should live and how they should act. Um, He's not making a value or a moral judgment about slavery. And this is a danger we we can succumb to, and that is when we have a passage of Scripture that mentions a subject, um, even if it's not talking particularly about that subject, we can infer things that the writer is not meaning. So in this state here, Paul is not meaning to bless slavery, but he is meaning to tell people who are slaves how they should live. Uh, So we should be slow to try to pull a value or a moral judgment on slavery from that. And probably for us, the the bigger of the minefields or the the one that we draw a different conclusion than a lot of people um, is that in verse 15. Um, Verse 15 said, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. This is one of the key verses that our uh, greater evangelical brothers use to defend uh, divorce and remarriage in certain settings. One thing we will find, for the most part, is a rejection that Christians who are married are able to divorce and remarry. Uh, Most, even in the greater evangelical world, will deny that. That if you are both a Christian and you divorce, uh, that that's that's not proper. But the question comes in is when one is a believer and one is not. Or uh, a question of, so these two people have been married and divorced multiple times, and then they become Christians. 
So are they enslaved to their previous marriages? And this verse has been used to say, no, they are not. Uh, because that unbeliever is unwilling to remain in the marriage that that person is not free. So that's the one reading of the text. The other reading, which I believe we take and, and which I'll try to propose to you, is that the believing spouse is not forced to choose it, their Christianity over their marriage. Okay, so... In this position, let's say the husband tells the wife, if you don't stop this Christian thing, I'm going to divorce you. Okay? So we would say that God hates divorce, that divorce is never an option uh, unless in the case of adultery, as Jesus allowed. But what this passage is saying is that that spouse is not enslaved to that marriage. They're free to dissolve that marriage. Uh, but I think it's clear that they should remain unmarried. Um, Genesis 2, Matthew 19, verse 39 in this passage clearly state that the death of a spouse is the only means by which a person is free to remarry. So that uh, when Paul is saying they're not enslaved, he's saying they're not forced to remain in that marriage. Um, but it's not licensed to remarry. It's not uh, licensed to just completely wipe the previous marriage um, off of the account. Now, as we realize in our modern world, this gets pretty messy. As we reach out into our communities, we will continually, more and more, run into situations like this. When a person comes to Christ, we are going to struggle with these types of issues. And unfortunately, we've probably tended to start at the wrong places. We've tended to, immediately upon conversion or interest in the gospel, we're going to pull in, well, this marriage isn't, is illegitimate, you're going to need to separate. Um, and I think we've probably been a little quick uh, with that. We must be clear that the gospel and obedience to Christ is our first and our foremost responsibility. But again, these situations need to be handled with much care and much prayer. We must allow God to soften the hearts of people towards obedience. We must not present an image that if the person walks down this certain pathway of actions, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, and God will then like me for that. God will grant us holiness because of that. We must realize that our holiness is in Christ alone. It's not in the things that we do. It's not in the things that we agree to. Our holiness is only in Christ. Now, we must continually be faithful to the Scripture in teaching that. But none of us know the results of full surrender. So when you first became a Christian, none of us knew what that life would entail. We must call all people to a full surrender and obedience. We must realize that full surrender is a process. And also understanding that none of us know the full implications of a life committed to obeying God. We must be clear that the best scriptural understanding of marriage is one woman, one man for life. 
And we don't need to budge on that. Um, and we must be clear that a marriage doesn't necessarily need to be Christian to be recognized. I'd like to spend the remainder of our time here looking at verses 17 uh, through 24 uh, in what I feel is the overriding principle. Uh, verses 17, verses 20, and repeat the idea that we live life as God assigns. Verse 17 says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Verse 20 said, Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. And verse 24 says, So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. 17 says that we lead the life that the Lord has assigned. The life that we have, the person that we are, is not some random accident. Who we are and the situation we are in is clear from this passage, is assigned to us by God. If you think carefully about who you are, what position in history, I think I've uh, gone through this here before, but I think it bears repeating. None of us chose to be born in the 1900s or the 2000s. None of us chose our parents. None of us chose our place of birth. None of us chose our hair color. None of us chose most of the things that make us who we are. Even in things that we have choice, like who our spouse is, um, none of us chose their journey through life either. Most of our life has been assigned to us by God. The situation we are in, the people we are surrounded with, we didn't choose them. We didn't make them come about. And so we must admit that God is quite sovereign in who we are. But not only has it been assigned to us, but we are called to live as a Christian in it. Verse 20 says, remain in that life. Don't demand to change it. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean that we seek to drastically change our circumstances. We don't seek to run out of who we are and make a life that's different. We live as a Christian in the place or the position that God has assigned us. The two examples he gives is that of a slave. If the slave has the opportunity to be free, he should take that. But it shouldn't be his utmost goal to not be a slave anymore. If circumcised or uncircumcised, the second example there, it, it, it matters little. We're to remain as a Christian as who we are. God does not rank people according to social position or place. He doesn't look at you and say, well, you're an American, you grew up in a Christian home, you're a better person. The only rank that we have or can claim is that of in Christ. When we stand before God, um, our only claim to entry into heaven is that Christ died on the cross for our sins. That He is our righteousness. So we can't claim anything about ourselves as the means of entry, but we claim Christ as our only hope. Now, 
one caveat here is that this is not, um, it's not giving liberty to remain in a position of sin. So some have used this passage in support of, of the divorce uh, idea when a person is an unbeliever, um, that if you come to Christ and you've been divorced and remarried, that's the position you're in and you remain there. And I don't think textually that that carries out. It's not a license to remain in a position of sin. And then the final repeating of this um, leading of the life is that we're to remain with God. We can be sure that God does not place us in a situation and leave us alone. We can be sure that where we are, He will give us the grace to withstand and to live. The Great Commission says, I will be with you always. Um, So, in the position we are, it's sometime, um, you know, depending on our, on our past, it, it may be tempted to say that, you know, God has left me here and left me alone or rejected me. But it's clear that God does not do that. Even if our situations may be difficult, we can be sure that he is with us and will help us remain Psalms 27, which uh, Brother Jason read earlier, I think brought out some of those themes as well. In conclusion, the two questions I would have for us is, are we placing our trust and our faith in God and in His arranging of our life? Or are we seeking to change it, seeking to exert our will above His? And then the second is, are you remaining there with God? Are you trusting God in the situations that you're in, in the place that you are? And I pray that we can do that. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning as we uh, consider our lives, as we consider our place, as we consider the, um, the surroundings that you have placed us in, whether we don't understand um, all that you have for us, we don't understand all that has been in our lives, but we know that you work things for your glory, and we pray that we would be able to accept your leading, accept your guiding in our lives, and to follow, to not seek to exert our will, but to seek to remain there uh, with you as our treasure and as our strength. Pray that as we go throughout this week, that we would uh, radiate um, that rest on you and on your gospel to the world around us. We pray this through Christ. Amen.